Welcome to Beatitudes, where your host, Dr. Kwamenique Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwamenique Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. Today, we're going to talk about be honorable, therefore receivable. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible, it's Matthew 10, 18, that says, You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. This was the scripture that came to mind for my husband, Dr. Aglalig Sakina, as he stood before the head of state in Israel at the Knesset, with 96 other First Nations people from North America during the Feast of Tabernacles in 1999. The reason that the First Nations people were at the Knesset was because they would never consider going onto the land of another without first doing protocol. That's just an intrinsic thing within the First Nations people is honor and that understanding of protocol. The scriptures confirm the process of going through the gatekeeper of the nation, land, or home, or just the gatekeeper in, a, in an individual's life, being the gatekeeper of their own hearts. In John 10, it says, Very truly I say to you, whoever does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Think about that. You know, we don't want to be thieves and robbers. That's not the gospel message at all. Protocol is to go through the gate by way of the gatekeeper. Nations know this. Corporations know this. They practice protocol whenever they enter another nation or, you know, even sending people over into, uh, in a corporation to work in a country. They practice protocol. And it would be wise for us and our faith-based organizations to know this and know about protocol and practice it as well. So you might be asking, what is protocol? Protocol is the voice and the expression of honor, the voice and the expression of honor. The First Nations group that went to Israel, that stood before Avrenberg at the Knesset, was led by Grand Chief Linda Prince of the Carrier Sakani tribe of Canada. And along with, with Grand Chief Linda Prince were other chiefs and other First Nations leaders from across what we call Turtle Island, North America. And they had come to give honor where honor was due to the Jewish people, to Israel, to the apple of God's eye. These were leaders that had a relationship with God, and they understood that. Uh, they understood how God felt about Israel, that he says in his scriptures, Israel is the apple of my eye. When they first entered before Avrenberg, the head of the state, they were just given 15 minutes in which to do the protocol before the president, before they were to close with an honor song, because, you know, when you've got chiefs or heads of state or presidents, they're very, very busy. So when our people go in to do protocol, they're not going in entitled to expect a whole lot of time. We will take whatever is given to us to be able to show honor where it's due. The Grand Chief stood before and expressed to Avrenberg what a privilege it was to stand before the first of all the First Nations peoples. 
She then stated that though we as First Nations, we've lost the control of most of our lands. A lot of the land was stolen and taken. And we don't have control in, that, in the structure of our governments for the United States or Canada. As First Nations people, since the creator of everything was the one who assigned, if you read in Acts, it talks about that God chose the places and the inhabitations of the people that even though the land was taken, that the First Nations people are still the stewards of that land, and we have a spiritual authority and responsibility on that land that the Creator bestowed to us. So therefore, First Nations people see themselves as the gatekeepers of those lands, and we feel responsible for what takes place on the land, regardless of our inability to govern the original lands given to our people. Grand Chief Linda Prince explained this. She then said, for this reason, we want to repent and take responsibility for what happened when the ship named the St. Louis came to the to Canada border, came to the U.S. border, and it was filled with Jewish people fleeing the Holocaust. And our government in the United States and the Canadian government turned the ship away and the passengers returned back and many were murdered in the Holocaust. She stood before Avonberg and she said, we want to make an account for that. We want to ask for forgiveness for the tragic event that took place to your people and the horrible things that your people experience. The buck, basically, she was saying, stops with us because we see ourselves as gatekeepers. We feel responsible for what happened on the land that God entrusted to us. And even though we couldn't change that, we, as the spiritual authority and leaders, and having to make an account to the Creator, we want to take responsibility and repent for that. President Berg responded to that by calling his assistant over and clearing his schedule to spend over an hour and 45 minutes with the First Nations delegation, of which my husband was in that group. And this was on television and radio. They had stuff in the newspaper, the Indians are here. <laughs> and um, everywhere our people went, there were throngs of people coming around them wanting to, to know about them and learn about them. President Berg then asked how the First Nations people came to faith, and Chief Will Mayo Athabaston from Alaska gave his personal testimony. As the time with Auburnberg came to a close, the First Nations delegation asked if they could sing an honor song. And it was explained because our people didn't want to offend, that in the honor song we normally sing, we use the name of God, and that our people did not want to offend the Jewish people by speaking the name that they don't speak. And the reason they don't speak it is they believe the name of God is so powerful that they don't want anyone to use it for in misdeeds, and it's so sacred that they don't want to speak it out. They say Hashem, which means the name. And that's their way of respecting and honoring God. Avram Berg told them, go ahead, please sing the honor song. You're the Indians. Do what you came here to do. And it just so happened the name of God that we used also is Yahweh. So they gathered around the drum and they began to sing the honor song, Yahweh, Yahweh drumming, and it was a glorious time for the First Nations people to be standing there in Israel, in the Knesset, with the leaders of Israel, honoring 
with that song. And as the First Nations delegates drummed and danced and sang that honor song, Avram Berg put on the native headdress that he'd been gifted, and he came to the big drum and sang the song with our people as he drummed with the First Nations people. And this went out on radio and television. And the, in fact, there was a picture of him in the, in the paper there with him with the headdress on, saying the Indians are here. After the song, he, he then said, I know that you believe in most, if not all, of the New Testament, but I give you the authority. See, that's what the gatekeepers have the authority. One of the things my husband says that I love, he said, you know, you can't take authority. You either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you need to find out who has it. You know, God has the authority over everything. So when we do things in his honor and as his spoke people, we have to remember we're representing and do it as he would do it. But he said, I give you the authority to do what you came here to do, and I offer you my protection. He then raised his hands, and he pronounced a blessing to the delegation in Hebrew. My husband thought that he had given them the ironic blessing because he didn't understand Hebrew at the time. And he saw that the media filming the event, they were in tears, and they were crying. So he asked them, why are you crying? And they said, well, because of the blessing that Offenberg gave to you. And this is while they were walking out and leaving the area, exiting the area. My husband said, was it the ironic blessing? And they said, no, that's not what he prayed over he, you. He prayed over you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said, when the head of Israel pronounced that blessing over the Goyim, it means that our Messiah is at the gate of Israel. My husband, Sukina Anupiat from Alaska, told me that he asked himself that day, how does an Alaska native from the residential school orphanage, given up because his family had TB, adopted by missionaries, taken away, and then going back to my culture years later and reconstructing my life, how does an Alaska native from the other side of the world find himself before the head of state in Israel? except for what the Lord said. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, says the Lord. And if we want to be able to stand before those people, we really need to understand and utilize protocol. This is the power of protocol. Redemptive acts, A-C-T-S, acts, expressing honor. Our dear friend Fawn Parrish, in her book on honor, says that honor is the language of heaven. And I believe that's true. Honor is transformative. It's the foundational stone to all our relationships. It's the key that unlocks the gates to nations and to people's hearts. Honor is the missing key for many religious organizations who want to share their faith and their lives with others. At times, They are ineffective because of the lack of honor in the interactions with other people, especially people we don't understand, people of different faiths, people of different cultures, even different genders, you know, male and female. It's very easy when we don't understand to fall to dishonor because we don't even know we're doing that. Going as a speaker and not as a listener is the first mistake. We have two ears and one mouth for a reason. 
We are far more effective in building lasting relationships with others if we're willing to hear their story first before making assumptions and filling up the space with our words. People are turned off by arrogance. They're turned off by people speaking at them, lecturing them, and leaving them feeling less than, like the mission field. It's called paternalism, and it does not draw people. It repels people. It is dishonoring. On the contrary, honor draws people. Most people will not turn away from honor. Gary Smalley in his book, The Gift of Honor, says this, Honor is a decision we make to place high value, worth, and importance on another person by viewing that person as a priceless gift, granting them a position in our lives worthy of great respect. And love involves putting that decision into action. One of the ways that honor has been derailed from our faith-based institution, and I'm going to, you know, this is probably a sacred cow, but it was from the umbrella teaching that permeated our organization some years back. And, and, and that was, there are many things that are well-meaning. There is an authority base, you know, to things. There are times that we're in authority in, 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 in institutions and in situations. But in some ways, that teaching was used to control people and subjugate people. In the umbrella teaching, it is set up as a hierarchy in a vertical, linear way. So, like, God over man, man over woman, woman over male child, male child over female child, female child over male dog, male dog over female dog, female dog over male cat, male cat over female cat, female cat over male bird, male bird over female bird, female bird over male fish, male fish over female fish, female fish over the land. Now, I know I'm being facetious right now, but I want you to see how crazy that is. It's based on a value system, a man's value system. God doesn't value dogs more than cats or men more than women or children less than women or the land last. That is something we set up and whatever is under us, we devalue. The value system, whatever's under you is of less value. It's subtle, but it's there all the same. What's above you, then you respect and you look up to and it has more value and authority than you in the system. And what is below you has less. The sad truth is that the land is last in this scenario. So you can see now why it's been treated so poorly by us as stewards. If we value it less, we're going to treat it worse. It's so interesting, this hierarchy we've made in religion, because the true essence of Christianity is that Jesus, Yeshua, left that place. He left the top of the umbrella and came down into the circle of life with us. I guess that's what he thought of the umbrella teaching. He would rather be in relationship with us. I, I guess that would be why he washed his disciples' feet. He left the top of the umbrella and came down and became a servant to all. In many tribes, the chiefs eat last, not first. Like Yeshua, they believe that a true leader serves their people, not the other way around. Definitely not the umbrella teaching. The opposite of undervaluing someone and placing less importance on them due to their position on the hierarchy scale is honor. The Hebrew word for honor is kavod. It means heavy and weighty. 
To honor someone is to give them weight or importance. To treat someone lightly and with less value is to dishonor them. The devaluing of people and living things through dishonor is the root of racism, animal cruelty, polluting the land, anti-Semitism, misogyny, child abuse, and domestic violence. All of these have dishonor at their core. The devaluing of a people. Before the abuse starts, before the acts of violence starts, it's always the devaluing, making them light, treating them lightly. I want to share some stories with you about the power of honor through the act of protocol. They're powerful examples of how honor moves the hearts of others. My life was derailed 36 years ago when I contracted Epstein-Barr virus. And, and, you know, I just thought I had a virus and and I had gotten better of viruses before. Many people get Epstein-Barr virus and they get better from it. Just like some people got COVID and got better. But just like there's long COVID, there's long Epstein-Barr. And I was left with severe damage to my immune system. And it still causes me life-altering and life-threatening issues. At first, I have to tell you, and this is normal, I was devastated. And I tried for many years through prayer and deliverance and vitamins and supplements and so many different things I tried. I wanted to get my life back. Who doesn't? And I wanted the ability to function as I had in the past. I couldn't eat certain things. I couldn't, didn't have energies. It was difficult. And it was not, it was not to be. It, this just was not to be. It, it wasn't the path I ended up on. I still pray for people to be healed supernaturally, and I see the results of that. I still pray for myself. It's in God's hands. But everything I did, I tried. It was no fault of my own. And at some point, I had to come into a place of acceptance. Once I surrendered to the process and began to look for the silver lining, I thought to myself, if my life is going to be filled with medical appointments, I'm going to use that to be a blessing to someone else and try to inspire others. I'm going to learn as much as I can so I can help for, to advocate for others. If I've had this derailment, if, if the enemy has come and hit me in this place, something good is going to come out of this for the kingdom of God and my faith and the way it's not for naught. For me, this came in the shape of doing protocol with my medical providers. After all, I was entering their system. The medical system is a system, and they were the gatekeepers of that system. And I began that with sending yearly letters to them with a small thank you gift at the end of the year every year and thanking them for what they do. And here's an example of the letter that I sent this year. And I'll use my doctor that I love so much. She's a believer, Dr. Burbank, that I've had for 36 years. Dear Dr. Burbank, this time of the year, I always reflect on how precious life is and how fragile it is as well. I think having had a serious illness now for over 35 years that I have learned this valuable lesson. Not a day goes by that I don't thank the Creator for allowing me to have this precious gift called life. As I count my blessings, I always think of you and how, the, and how the incredible care you've given to me as my doctor has enabled me to have the best quality of life possible. 
I know that your job is not easy and that you've paid and continue to pay an incredible price to serve humanity in the capacity that you do. I also know that we live in a culture that often forgets to say thank you and places heavy demands on others. That is why I'm writing to say thank you, and not only for what you continue to do for me, but all the other people that you serve that have not taken the opportunity to thank you for what you're doing for them as well. The role that you play in the lives of others is a sacred trust, and you carry a tremendous amount of responsibility. You make so many sacrifices, and your family does as well. I just wanted to let you know that I am so grateful for you and the role you play on my medical team. You are the wind beneath my wings. As this year closes during this holiday season, I pray that you will be blessed and your family in the same way that you abundantly bless me. I want you to know (laughs) that in all the years I've been doing this, when I go in for my appointments, they most almost always respond to thanking me for sending it. One doctor told me that it made her day. She came over. She was a doctor that was pretty staunch, and she came and put her arm around me. She said, I've just got to tell you what that did for me. And then she shared with me about her father's death and her grief process. It just completely opened up the opportunity for us to talk. One doctor told me that. And that she'd been feeling so low that people were so entitled that she was seldom thanked, just expected to perform. Can, can you imagine what that feels like on the job? You know, I mean, it's easy for us to think of doctors and pastors and people in helping professions that they're this empty, uh, you know, vessel. I mean, they're full vessel that never empties. And it's just not that. So they go home. They're human beings. More than one doctor opened up to me about the challenges that they face now that our medical system has changed and been bought out by corporations. About 10 years ago, the corporations started buying up our medical. I've seen the change in it because I've been in it for 36 years. I've seen how it's changed. I realize now. Most doctors are no longer in private practice. Private practice is going away. Most of them can't afford to be in there by themselves and pay for it alone and One of my doctors expressed to me they're trying to hang on for their patients and retire later than earlier. So many took early retirement during COVID because it's just gotten so difficult. But I had two different doctors tell me that they stayed up late at night, that they they had to do so much charting now and that the codes with insurances change all the time. And if they don't get the code exactly right, they don't get paid. So they spend so much time in paperwork they don't, it, it robs their time of their patients, and the really good doctors are like, I'm not going to pull time away from my patients. So they're going home at night and eating dinner and staying up till 10 or 11 doing charting. Can you imagine that? I had no idea. Me sharing with them, honoring them, doing protocol with them, they, they, they saw me as a safe person. They began to share with me in ways that I can pray for them. One doctor framed my letter and hung it on the wall. And just last week when I went into my surgeon and my gynecologist for checkups, I'd had some reports, had to get, had some tests and had to get checked out. I was really touched by their responses. My gynecologist came in, reached out, put her hand on my arm, looked at me right in the eye, and she said with this kind voice, thank you so much for the letter you sent to me. 
It came at a time when I was really asking myself why I had become a doctor. I needed your letter to remind me why I made that choice. The medical field has changed so much and it's difficult to maneuver through the system. I needed your letter to remind me and I placed it in a special place that I keep special mementos. The surgeon's assistant at the next appointment said that the surgeon, when she was checking me in, she said, you're the one that wrote this letter. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, I just want you to know it so touched the surgeon that he called our whole team in and he read your letter out loud to all of us. I try to remember that my doctors are people and that I have a working relationship with them. And it's not all about me taking something from them. It's about me giving something back. And we can all do that. I know we pay them for their services, but we're paying a system, really, because they're not getting paid what they used to get paid. And insurance costs so much, and lawsuits are so prevalent. It's about giving something back, and we can all give back honor, and we can give honor where it's due. Over the last few years, I've had three surgeries. The week before those surgeries, I prepared gift bags for the people I'd encounter at my surgery. I took about 40 small gift bags. I had them in these big shopping bags. I walk in, I'm getting ready to have surgery, and I'm bringing in these bags with all these little gift bags in there. And I took about 40 of them with the similar letter that I just read to you, to them, and then a candle. And these things don't have to be expensive. I went to the dollar store and got the candles. And then these little frames that I got there, too. And it had this quote in it. I had framed it for them to put on their desk. The hero is one who kindles a great light in the world, who sets up blazing torches in the dark streets of men to see by. The saint is the man who walks through the dark paths of the world, himself a light. Felix Adler. And I told them all in the letter, you are this to the world. You're the saint. You're the light. You're in these dark places where people come in and there's uncertainty and death and all kinds of things. And you've, you've made the decision to go down into those dark places and be there in those dark places with people. I want to honor you for that. At each stop along the way from the time I checked in for surgery that morning, the person who registered me to the nurses that cared for me, to the anesthesiologist, to my surgeon, all the assistants. I gave them each a gift bag. And even the doctor's office, when I went for my aftercare, I protocoled them as well. They were blown away. Some of them cried. <laughs> they, they opened up right then and read the letter, and I'm sitting there and they're crying. All of them said that no one had ever done this before. If I had not come back into my native heritage and learned the power of protocol, I wouldn't have done it either. I wouldn't have thought about it. But coming back into my First Nations heritage and learning about honor and understanding honor, it has changed my life. It was such a gift for me to be able to do that with them. And it definitely got my mind off of my surgery and myself. The focus was on being a blessing on making someone else's day better when mine was going to be a day of suffering and unknowns. 
Just because mine was was not going to be good in, in a certain way didn't mean that I couldn't do something with that. It's about that taking these things that happened to us these and being able to to pull up out of it and, and you know and say, you know, if if I'm going to be put here by the enemy of my soul, then there's going to be a price paid for that. You know, I'm I'm still able to function until my last breath. I'm needed and with my intention, I can make something, make a difference with my life, no matter how disabled, how depressed, how depleted, whatever comes my way, I can still utilize because God will get inside of me and raise me up if I ask him for that grace. And honor, as honor always does, completely changed that day for me. I wasn't a victim of a surgery. I wasn't going in. I was in there as a representative of the Most High God, making a difference, reminding people they were precious, reminding people they were needed, reminding people they were important, and they needed to hear that. It not only touched and altered the medical people's lives, but it did mine as well. The power of protocol and honor, the power of it. It's powerful. It is so important to me, this concept of honor. Now, I don't do it perfectly. I mean, because I'm a human being. But any opportunity I think of to be able to do it, it, it's, it's amazing. And there's so many things I haven't even touched yet. I haven't, you know, I thought about well, on my next flight, maybe I need to do that with the flight crew. You know, there's just so many ways that we can do it. And it opens the gate. People will ask you, why are you doing that? I can share about my Native heritage. I can share about my faith. I, wanted, I really wanted to get that important concept to my grandchildren. When they would come to visit me, I always protocol them. I always have special things. I remember all their special favorite things. I love doing that. And my youngest granddaughter, I have younger great-grandchildren than her, but my youngest granddaughter is eight. I call her Bugs. She's the last granddaughter. And since she was young, I've had the ability to be around her a lot. And from the time she was around nine months old, no, I guess she was a year old. She had just had her birthday. We started making things. She could not really even do it. I was doing it for her with her. She put her hand on it. We scribbled a, a note on it. You know, anything we could do. We did a handprint of her and gave it to everyone, all the relatives. Every year we make cookies during the holidays and we do Hanukkah gifts. So if You know, whatever is needed at that time, whatever however people express, we honor them in their way of their culture. And every year we do that, and we also make gifts. This year we made, she and I made moccasins for her mommy and her Zaza. She calls her daddy Zaza. And it's so wonderful. She's so excited, and she really loves giving because she understood honor. When she comes to stay with me in the summer, we also bake cupcakes and we get a case of bottled water and we take all these cupcakes. It's so hot here in the desert. It gets up to 118, 120. And our people that do the landscape still are out here in, in that it's just ridiculous what people have to go through. And and I made her aware of that. I said, they need to be honored for that. And so we go around. My husband drives us in the car and we go to where they're doing all their work and we get out and we give them water and cupcakes 
She loves that. I love that. I love that. It's, it's a part of being able to be a part of the humanity, and it's a part of being able to be an ambassador for the kingdom of the Creator. It's never too early to teach the next generation about honor. I'm always blessed when my husband, Dr. Sukina, and I have taught on the power of protocol. You have a, We have a book called Warfare by Honor. You can get that. It's all about protocol. It's got some amazing stories in it. If you want to learn more, there's even a chapter on honor in the home, how you can actually do protocol in your home. You can get it on our website, indigenousmessengers.com. You just go to the store. It's called Warfare by Honor because when you're looking at spiritual warfare, we've been taught a lot, but we've not been taught that that is probably one of the greatest, greatest parts of spiritual warfare next to prayer would be honor and protocol. But when we see people implement it in their lives, it is such a blessing to us. And I want to share two stories with you that really stand out to me. The first one is, and actually three stories. The first one is about a church in Hopkinsville, Kentucky called Crossroads Christian Fellowship. The pastors there are Graham and Mary Harvey, and they've become like family to us and to the Native community that, that's there. The Harveys are the real deal and that they actually live their faith in action. So when they heard my husband present on protocol, they were like, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And they really began to pray about, it really troubled them what had happened to the Cherokee people through the, the Trail of Tears and being relocated and losing all their land. And they're like, we're, we're living here on this land. And they'd been given money to, to build a church because they were renting. And the Lord really laid it on their heart to do this redemptive act. They had this money in their building fund. And when, when it hit them that the Cherokee had never been paid for their land. They went and they got the land appraised that, that they were going to build on. And they got gold coins. And they called up the tribal council and they said, we want to come and do protocol with you because they learned the word. The tribal council understood that. And they came and they said, this is what Graham said, we're going to pay for our land, for this land. They didn't say our land. We're going to pay for this land twice because you were never paid once. It, the Native people didn't know what to think. They, they had no grid for it. it. And here's these people that really want relationship. Graham and Mary and their church went out for years, over a decade, and served on the powwow grounds to help host the powwow and clean up the powwow grounds. Graham and Mary went to the council meetings. They became family with these people. They still are. They still are. When I spoke at their church the last time, Two Dog was there, one of the chiefs from Kentucky, and he came and we did protocol with each other. They, they really got the message, changed their lives, changed our lives. They are family to us. So much so that Every Sunday, I'm online and doing church with them. <laughs> when I can't be there, I, I want to just be in their presence because they're people of honor. They give you weight in their lives. And as a result, many of those First Nations people became a part of their church, but started coming to their church. Some played on the worship team. They were a catalyst in the area. They opened gates with honor and protocol. This is what 
It means to be a minister of reconciliation. We read about that in the scriptures, a minister of reconciliation, a bridge builder. Another beautiful story I want to share with you is about an Episcopal church. We just met with Father Chuck and Seiko, who were the leaders of that church. They've since retired, but they're still in our lives too, because when people act honorably and they do these things, they're so powerful. They become a part of your life forever, forever. And they, the uh, Father Chuck came and heard Sukina. We were um, speaking on Protocol Cheon's church at a Many Nations One Voice back in 99. This was February of 99. And he heard the message and it went straight into his heart. And then he had Sukina come and speak that Sunday after the conference. And he was like, he really took it to heart. He wanted to do something. So he's like, where do I start? Where do I start? Well, I guess we'll start with the Jewish people. That's where God started. (laughs) So it was like, so he calls up the rabbi and he says to the rabbi there in Burbank, I'm the priest of the Episcopal Church here in Burbank. And I would like to bring our leaders, the leaders of my church over to your synagogue We'd like to come and bless you. And the rabbi did not hesitate. And he said, we are the Jewish people. We have the blessing. <laughs> and Father Chuck said, well, let me rephrase that and correct what I just said. You were 100% correct. We would like to come to attend your service. We'll sit at the back. We'll wear kippahs. We'll do whatever's needed. Because you are our elder brother, and we would like to learn from you. We need you. Those words, we need you. We're not here to preach to you. We're not here to proselyze. We're not to, we need you. When you're told you're needed, it's a very powerful thing. And the rabbi said, well, since you stated it that way, you can come. And that began this long (laughs) year's relationship between the synagogue in Burbank, and the Episcopal Church in Burbank. Father Chuck would go meet with the rabbi once a week, and the rabbi, they would take a scripture, and the rabbi would share what it was in, in from the Jewish perspective, and Father Chuck would share what it was from the Christian perspective. And they spent time, they built this relationship. It went on and on and on to the place that Father Chuck, because he's a bridge builder, he and Seiko, well, we, we would like you to meet our Native American <laughs> We we did reconciliation with the First Nations people. We'd like you to meet them. Would you like to meet them? And he said, you know, they can welcome you on the land, you know, and that's a real blessing. And he said, well, we want that blessing. So we were invited to go over to the synagogue. We wore our best. We call them our priestly garments. I wore, we, we wore our buckskins and sealskin and furs. And we walked into the synagogue and this This one lady came up to me and she said, oh, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. She just loved our native regalia. They all did. We didn't know what was going to happen. So we're like sitting on the the second or third row, I guess. Rabbi got up and he's speaking. And then he said, tonight we have some very special guests. And I'd like them to come up and stand behind the bima here. And I I want them to, to speak and share with you. So Sukina got up, my husband, and he shared with them about going to the Knesset and how First Nations felt about the Jewish people 
and that they saw the Jewish people, that the ones that we are in relationship with, as the first nation of the first nation's people. And then he turned to me and said, Kwamenik, would you like to share anything? And I said, well, I want to thank you because you brought us the you brought us the Torah. And you paid a price to bring that to us. And those scriptures say that you're the, the apple of Hashem's eye. And besides that, you're our, it also says in our scriptures that we're grafted into you and you're our elder brother. And we just want to come and we want to sit and be with you and bask. It says that you're, that you're, Prophetic destiny is to be a light to the goyim, to the nations. And we just want to sit with you and bask in that light. And then we sat down. And the rabbi came and he got up and he stood there. Behind the scrolls, he had the scrolls laid out. And he didn't say anything for a long time. And my husband and I were looking at each other like, oh my goodness, I hope we didn't say something. I hope we didn't do a protocol blooper. He took a breath and then he said, I am now convinced that the Torah is for all nations, not just for our people. And I would like the children to come up and get under the chuppah, talit. I would like Sukina and Kwamanik to bless our children. And he called us back up and we had the honor and the privilege of doing that. The other thing that happened for me is that I was able to sing all of the Jewish songs that were in Hebrew. I was able to sing them all. I don't understand why. I can't explain it. The Jewish people were coming up to me and saying, oh, are you a Jew? We see you can see our songs. And I said, well, I think the creator just wanted to honor you by allowing me to do that because he loves you so much. That opened another opportunity for us because that a year later, because there's relationship here, it wasn't like, we're going to witness to you and you're going to witness to us and then we're going to fight over what we believe. And It was a relationship. And they built it on what they had in common, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I remember Father Chuck saying when they invited them, they invited them in because uh, during uh, Sukkot, and during uh, the different feast, Rabbi, and there's times of meeting together, Rabbi said, you know, we, are, we have to rent space. And Father Chuck said, don't rent space. We have a huge building. We don't even use it all. And he said, um, we'll, just, we'll just fix everything up so you can come in. And, and you know, we won't, won't offend your people. And so they did that. They shared that space for years. They went there to do all of the feast. They did everything together. During that same time, um, they were ha- going to have a Hanukkah Christmas celebration together. And so the choir from the Episcopal Church and the, the cantor with the singers from the Jewish synagogue started rehearsing together, and they sang each other's songs. And the last thing they sa- song they sang was a song called Carry the Light. Well, They ask us, Father Chuck and the rabbi ask us, if we would welcome, do a welcome. So we stood at the front and we watched the rabbi 
and the Episcopal priest walked down the center. First, we listened to these beautiful songs sung by the synagogue and the, and the Episcopal church. And they walked down, they lit the menorah together while Sakina was playing a native flute. And the first words out of my husband's mouth were, this is what could have been, and this is what should have been. It was just amazing, and it, it culminated with everyone singing Carry the Light. It was so amazing. It, those, those opportunities that come to us because of protocol, because of honor, it opens doors that cannot be shut. Another thing that happened as a result of this is that Father Chuck was introduced to the former rabbi who was aging, and Father Chuck spent a lot of time with him, and they, they would go over scriptures together, and Father Chuck would share, and the rabbi would share. <laughs> the rabbi just loved Father Chuck. He just trusted him and loved him. And, and so at his deathbed, he asked for Father Chuck to come, <laughs> and, and Father Chuck went. And he asked Father Chuck to pray with him. And he said, well, you know, when I pray, I'm a Christian. He said, that's okay. You can pray in the name, in your name. I just want you to pray with me. He ha- and then beyond this, he was asked to give a eulogy at the rabbi's gravesite. All of this because of the power of protocol. I want to share a couple more things really quickly that that happened. These were recent. Last year, Elizabeth Hawker came uh, to represent the um, Tongva of Los Angeles, the native people, and Atoret from Israel, who does Indigenous Bridges. And we got together and we met, I think it was at Beverly Hills at the synagogue, and we did a welcome. They were welcomed on the land by the gatekeeper of the land, Um, one of the gatekeepers of the land, all the Jews, and we pledged to stand with them. We pledged to stand with them. And that because of that and us doing that, it opened a relationship with my husband and the rabbi. The rabbi gave him a book, an amazing book that the rabbi had written. And then my husband does artwork and sends it to him. So they, they write each other from time to time. But Elizabeth and I were invited into the Orthodox community for the weekend of Shabbat. And I've got to tell you, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in my life. It was in the area of Los Angeles where all of the Jews live because on Shabbat they have to walk everywhere. They have to walk to synagogue. They have to walk to each other's homes. Well, we we got there and everybody puts their phones away and, and, and we walked... When we got up to the house, there were children everywhere, and it was just amazing. And we walk into this home with these young families, and and they're putting tables together to make room for everyone, and everyone's around the table, and and they're blessing the children, and then they're tearing the bread and passing it around, and, and we're doing the lahaim, and and people go around the table and they tell their spiritual experiences and share things that. Hashem has put on their heart and we're breaking bread together and then all of a sudden they'll start singing songs and banging the table and it was incredible. Never experienced anything like that in my life. And then we were there the next day. 
for second meal, and then when they closed Shabbat, third meal. And everyone stood around the tables, and we'd eaten together. We were under this orange, they had this orange tree with oranges, and they had couches all under it, and it was so organic and so beautiful. And we were invited into this because of protocol. We welcomed these people, and they opened their homes and their hearts to us. The same thing happened in Nashville in June. Grant, uh, Chief uh, Joseph Riverwind and Dr. Laura Lynn Riverwind, representative for the statewide Cherokee that she represents, and Atoret was there again from Israel, and we met with the, the Jewish people in Nashville. We welcomed them and pledged to, to stand with them. And then the next night, the next two nights, we celebrated Shabbat with the Orthodox rabbi from Vanderbilt University. And we went in with his family and they had these tables all set up for us. And we brought an entourage of First Nations people. And after dinner, we sat around the table sharing the likenesses between our words and the First Nations being like the Hebrew words. And then they would sing a song in Hebrew banging the table and singing with passion. And then we would sing a song with our drums. And at the end of each song, we would say, that was our, that's a, we know that that's a native word. They would, and they would say, no, that's a Hebrew word. And that's the way it was in Israel when they went over to Knesset. So many of our words, there was a lightness. But we sat there and we shared and we got to the last song on the last night. And Chief Joseph Riverwind said, you know, I'd like to end with our honor song, but we say the name in it, and we don't want to do anything to be offensive to you at all, but we do say the name. We have the same name that you have, but we actually say the name, and the rabbi said, no, 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 I want you, I can't say the name, but you can say the name. You go ahead and sing your song. It will be such a blessing. He was there with his kids and we started singing the song, Yahweh, Yahweh. And so everybody was drumming and we were singing. And we got through singing. His eyes were twinkling. He had this twinkle in his eyes. And he looked over at us and he said, I have to tell you, that makes me jealous. <laughs> he was jealous that we were able to say the name. The power of protocol. We have relationships, you know. It's about relationship. It's not about doing a reconciliation where I remember Richard Twist, our native, one of our native leaders, saying, if these people keep washing my feet, I'm gonna have to start getting pedicures. It's not about washing someone's feet. It's not about giving a gift and then getting up and moving away from that place. That would be like having a ceremony of marriage and then walking away from your wife and husband and then and going on your way. Purpose of the ceremony, the purpose of protocol is to open the gate for relationship. There's so many stories I could share with you about how powerful honor is and how powerful protocol is. It's the key that unlocks the doors to the hearts of others. As my husband and I have had the privilege to do this for so many years, over two decades, we've been before mayors, governors, tribal councils, chiefs, Linda Prince went before the Queen. They went before the Knesset. You name it. 
These places are open to protocol. Whenever we move on land or move somewhere, we always go to protocol the mayor of the city. And they're blown away. They're like, could you get more people to move here like this? We usually just get complaints. You know, it, as believers, we have, you know, if our political person is not in there, we, we, we have the, we're tempted to, to complain and to judge. But the power of protocol, we're supposed to respect positionally. It says in the scriptures, we pray for those people and that God puts the kings in their places. God establishes things. If we really believe that, then we really need to be moved and motivated by honor. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's let, me, let me say, if it's, a, if it's a Republican, Democrat, whatever, what about being a representative of honor to that person that might turn them around in the way they think about the other party? It is an opportunity we have never been rebuffed, but always thanked for coming. There's a scripture in Revelation 3, it's, it's 320, and it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I remember when God showed me this and he said, that's protocol. That's my protocol. Here is the God of the universe who made everything and made everyone. And he owns it all. And he has the right to everything. And yet he's showing us the protocol for entering into the life of another. He does not barge in. He does not take over. But respectfully stands at the door and knocks, waiting for the person to open the door. Because he's made us each the gatekeeper of our hearts. He's released that to us. And he understands gatekeeping and that he made us the gatekeepers of our own heart. He set it up that way. It's his protocol. And he's such a man of honor, he won't go against it. He stands at the door and knocks. And I want to say that to those of you that are out there. You know, if you've been wounded by religion, and religion is wounding, it's supposed to be a relationship with the Creator if you've been wounded and you have a feeling of you're jaded, and believe me, I've been through that myself. I've been wounded by well-meaning people, and it, and it caused me to be jaded. I want you to know that was not God. God, it says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So if land is stolen, culture's destroyed, people are killed, spirits are killed, it is not God. It's religion. And it doesn't matter which religion that is. We're all, we can all be very proud of our religion. But it doesn't matter if it's the Taliban or if it's fundamentalist believe, believing people that are so out to be right fighters and they can't listen. They can only hear. And they're paternalistic and they're there trying to control you. That is not God. He stands at the door and knocks. He's not going to barge your door down. I want to end with the scripture in Matthew that reinforces honor and a way it's to operate in our lives. Matthew 1040 says this, He who receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The opposite is also true. 
He who does not receive you does not receive me or does not receive the one who sent me. This shows the importance of being receivable. That's what the topic is tonight. Be honorable, honorable, therefore receivable. This shows the importance of it. Honor is the key that makes us receivable in the lives of others. It opens the door of the heart of the gatekeepers. And in so doing, it allows God to come into their lives and dine with them. We are but the conduit for the power and the love of God to flow through into a world in need of both. Let's don't be stumbling blocks. We are messengers. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are the hands and the feet of a loving God desiring to come and dine with all that he has made. Let us be mindful that we have been commissioned and we are the sent ones and they can receive the one who sent us. Let us be receivable by practicing protocol and honor in all our affairs. I want to thank you again for being with me. Thank you for your time. I'm always reminding you that your time is valuable and you've given some of it to me today and you're giving it to others. And I, I want to also remind you again that the book Warfare by Honor, which I spoke a lot about honor tonight in War, Warfare by Honor, you can get it on our website, indigenousmessengers.com. It's in the store. And there's so many other things that you can get there as well. A lot of our other teachings. My husband is an incredible teacher on the Hebrew roots of the scriptures. It just opens up so many things. He is one of the best teachers I have ever listened to. So I want to direct you there. I also want to remind everyone if, if you can be with us in July on the 14th, 15th, and 16th in Richmond, Virginia. We'll be at MAPS Global on Friday and Saturday, Friday night and all day Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday afternoon between, I think, 4 and 7 will be at Tikvot Israel in, in their basement. I want to tell you this, gonna, this is going to be an incredible time. We're going to be honoring Israel. Uh, the, the gathering is called First Nations Honors Israel. And the speakers will be speaking on Israel about why it's so important, especially now. Anti-Semitism has, is out the roof now. And I'm going to be speaking about that when I do protocol on Friday night at that gathering about how much we're seeing an increase in, in anti-Semitism. It's so important that we stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters and that we honor Israel because the Lord said this to us. He said, he who honors you, he, he said, um, he who blesses you will be blessed and he who curses you will be cursed. But the, the literal Hebrew is he who blesses you, Israel will be blessed. But he who lightly esteems or ignores you will be bitterly cursed. That's what it actually says. So we look at kavod and heaviness. If we take the if we take his people lightly, we will not walk in the fullness of blessing. So that's very important. I want to dedicate this podcast to my children and my grandchildren. 
This is my ethical will that I'm leaving behind. My words will be eternal. They'll be going, be able to go back. And let me tell, say this to all you boomers out there. Your words become very important once you're gone. If you're not writing down things for your children and your grandchildren, if you're not recording things, take the time to do that. It's hard. It's hard for me because I don't want to think about my, you know, crossing over. I want to always be here. So I just want to remember them, my grandchildren and my children. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for listening to Beatitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.